The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for making it and for sustaining it and for reigning over it in everything. As we turn to your word, we say thank you for speaking to us in Scripture that we can read, see, and by your Spirit understand and be changed by. You give gift after gift after gift, life and then sustaining of life. We say thank you, and then we make a request of you, Lord, that you would open up your word to us and that you would teach us even from heartbreaking, tragic things like we see today. There is, there is nothing fun about this passage before us this morning. It is heartbreaking. It is offensive, it is shocking, and it's heartbreaking. And it's in your word to do a good work in us. So, Spirit of God, would you come then and move through this room and move through this word in this room to work in the hearts of your people here and in the hearts of those who are not your people but sit here and listen and seek you. Lord, I trust there are people who are seeking here because you are drawing. And I pray that you would alert people to the fact that you see them and that you know them. That sin is real and so is grace. Teach these lessons and perhaps others, Lord. I don't know what everybody needs here. You do and you are, are the perfect teacher. So take your word and teach and change and build your church to your honor, please. Give us the ability to focus, to, to attend to what's here, to deal with it in, in the right order, in a timely way. Lord, we need you to order, order our minds. I feel like my mind's going everywhere. Order it, please. Draw our attention to you. Feed us and change us. Build your church, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the glory of Jesus and for the good of your people, I pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Second Samuel chapter 11, and as I alluded to in the prayer, what we find there is something unexpected and tragic. For several chapters now, we've been following David in his remarkable experience of the blessing of God. A chosen, this is a man chosen by God to be king of Israel while he was still a boy, anointed by the Lord, and then time after time after time delivered from, from Saul's hand seeking to kill him. And then finally now, it's, it's taken decades, but God finally brought him through every adversity and brought him to the throne over all of Israel and has seated him there safe and secure. And then on top of that, did even more. Chapter 7 made a covenant with him of tremendous promise. We saw in chapter 7 how he promised that he would give David a line, a family after him, always to sit on the throne over Israel. And he would make a great name for David, says the Lord. I will make a name for you and I will use you and your sons after you to plant my people in a place of security and rest all to my glory through you. 
This is what I will do. He promised him. And David, stunned by it, sits before him in chapter 7. Who am I? Who am I to receive such a promise and such blessing from you? That you would do this for me. And God does do it for him. Chapter 8, he begins right away to chase away all of the enemies and to strike down the enemies of David and Israel and clears out a place and puts them there securely. David experiences the the loving kindness of the Lord again and again and again and again. And then in chapter 9, he becomes the conduit. He pours out that loving kindness of the Lord on people in Israel who should be his enemies, Mephibosheth. And then in chapter 10, somebody from outside of Israel who should be his enemy, the, the king of the Ammonites, Hanun. He's, he's a, this gracious king pouring out the love of God through him that he's experiencing. He's giving it away and showing the goodness of God. And then chapter 11, the wheels come completely off the cart and we are shocked. Maybe a bit disappointed, but certainly shocked. Shocked if you're coming to it for the first time. One of our problems is that we all know this way too much. We, we, we are way too familiar with it, so we're not shocked. But if you're reading through this for the first time, the story that I was just reiterating there, that's the story. And then, what? You kind of want to say, did I, this pages skip together there? Are we still in the same? Because how can this be? But it is. It's the same war with the Ammonites going on. It's the same king, but he's a totally different guy. Something is very different about him. He's no longer the conduit of grace and love and goodness. Instead, he is the means of evil among the people of God. This king, too, does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's what we need to consider this morning. Now, this king, too, will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So we're going to look at that in chapter 11. And, and really, all of 11 and most of 12 are all, they kind of belong together. They are part of the same story. And actually, the pinnacle of the story is in chapter 12. But it's way too long to deal with all at once, so we're going to deal with it in parts. Looking at chapter 11 this morning, and it will continue on in, into next week. But I'm going to read all of 11, and we'll see what we find there about a king who does evil in the sight of the Lord. May God teach us and, and warn us and and encourage us. There's good for us in this passage. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, literally it's messengers go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. 
So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and all the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubesheth? And did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David, All that Joab had sent in to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and and encourage him. When the wife wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 11. The text starts off by picking up with the Ammonite war that was underway back in chapter 10. It was suspended briefly as the Syrians got involved and Israel had to fight against them and dispatch them, but they didn't quite deal yet with the original problem, the Ammonites, and then, and then the, the winter season came and so they had to suspend the, the offensive. But now it's springtime and time to finish off the Ammonites. And David sent Joab with all Israel to do the work which introduces to us a couple of themes here. First, the idea of sending. 
the word and the idea of sending is all throughout this passage, climaxing in the next chapter in an important place. It's a very common word and idea throughout. People are sending and sending and sending and sending and sending and sending, emphasizing human activity, saying and doing things that make things happen. People are very active and engaged and running the show, pulling the levers here. David sent Joab in the army. Literally, he, he did this in the time when messengers go out to battle. Not, it's not actually literally kings, although that's the idea. This is the time, generally, when if you're at war, you're about the business of the war. Now, it wouldn't have been universally wrong for David not to go out. After all, in the previous chapter, he sent Joab out with the army, and that's why they had army commanders, after all, that people to command the army. But there's something here that's saying this is the time when one should be about the business of the war and David took a personal time out and stayed home, checked out as they went off to get things done. And what follows in verses 2 to 5 is matter of fact, full of action, there's no... There's no Reflection here about emotions or inner thought life. It's about action. Verbs. Saw, sent and inquired, sent messengers and took and lay with Bathsheba, wife of Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile. A truly loyal soldier and a Gentile. One of David's 30. One of his his special chosen corps of warriors most closely devoted to him. A Gentile who had said, I am yours, David. My life and my sword is yours. His wife. Daughter of Eliam. Another one of David's 30. Another guy, this is an Israelite, from Judah, who says, my life and my sword is yours. His daughter. And if she's the daughter of Eliam, that means she's the granddaughter of Ahithophel. David's best, trusted, wisest advisor. She's the wife of one of his closest warriors, the daughter of one of his closest warriors, and the granddaughter of his closest advisor. Ouch. She's certainly a lot younger than him, given that. And because of her family and all the connections, he almost certainly knew her though he didn't recognize her, seeing her as he did. But he sees her, sends for her, takes her, and lies with her. She's not pregnant when she comes to the palace. We know that because she was cleansing herself from her monthly uncleanness. But she ends up, I am pregnant. And now David has a problem because adultery is punishable by death according to the law. Uh Uh-oh. So he sent for Uriah to cover over his offense with deception. He brings Uriah and has the audacity to speak to Uriah. Verse 7, we lose it in the English because it says things like, how's the war doing? How's it going? It's the word shalom three times. I mean, it's properly translated. You can translate that word different, different ways in different settings, but it's the word shalom. So you hear repeatedly, How's the peace and well-being of, the peace and well-being of, the peace and well-being of? <laughs> I've stabbed you in the back, and I'm, the only reason I got you back here is to cover over my 
well-being and peace-breaking sin against you. The hypocrisy is startling. Why don't you go home and, you know, you know. But Uriah won't do that because he's such a loyal servant. And, and it tells us why in verse 11. His speech there is, is pretty stark and we learn in it something more of David's sin that, that's rather subtle here. He's, he's got an obvious angle of how could I go home and enjoy the comforts of home. And he, and he ends this, and to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife, middle of the verse. That's a rather odd personal note, except that it's not just a personal note. That statement and the fact that he responds so harshly, as you live and as my soul lives, I would never do such a thing, reveals something. He's, he's actually under an oath. Many Israelite soldiers and many other nations, in fact, also. But we first encountered this with Israelites back in 1 Samuel 21 when David was fleeing away from, from Saul and he tells the priests there, in all, in all my missions, my men and I, our vessels are pure. We have kept ourselves from women always, whenever we go out. We always engage with a vow of chastity to devote ourselves fully to the Lord and we separate ourselves from women. And David lured him home and invited him and then later got him drunk and tried to persuade him to break his vow to the Lord. He says, not on your life. A vow to the Lord? Are you insane? Says the king who didn't go with them and broke such a vow himself. So that didn't work. He can't cover his sin with deception, so he will have to cover it with blood. With the blood of innocent, loyal, righteous Uriah. And as it turns out, the blood of a number of other people too. The people have to die and shed their blood to cover over the sins of the king. Something's backwards here. Joab gets the message sent ironically, sealed in the hand of loyal Uriah. And while he modifies David's plan so as to arouse less suspicion, it it would have been highly suspicious if everybody had to be told, for some reason we're going to abandon our brother in arms, we're going to step back and let them strike him down. They would have had to have been told something about that. So Joab modifies a little bit, and they get a little overzealous, and they get in close and get shot by archers from the wall. But Joab gets that David wants him dead and accomplishes it. And sends back word, almost as if he's sending a message to David. I get you, Abimelech. He's not thinking David's going to pull something out from hundreds of years ago. And why, Joab, why did you do like Abimelech? He's connecting David to Abimelech, one who was killed by a woman, but in the process killed his brothers. I get you, Abimelech, David. And when David receives the news, he plays it cool. Well, that's unfortunate. These things happen in war, you know. Poor Joab must be all broken up about this. And literally, he says to the messenger, go tell Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your sight. He uses the word for evil. It's translated as, as disappointment or unfortunate in some of our translations, troubling. Don't let this thing be evil in your sight, Joab. Things happen. And then the wife of Uriah 
Notice how many times her proper position is underlined. The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead and lamented her husband. She belongs somewhere. And after that's all over, takes her into his house, marries her, and she bears him a son. That was close. Oh, one more sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, but the thing was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Same wording as up above. Tell Joab, don't let this be evil in his sight, but it is evil in the Lord's sight. That's where the chapter ends. As I said, the story continues on, but there's a, there's a pause there, which is why the, the chapter ends there. And we're going to consider a couple of points from, from this chapter and the the tragedy and the, the shock that is in it. The first point that we need to see in it about David, I'm going to express it like this. Every king, until the king, takes to feed his own desires. Every king, every ruler, Everyone with authority, with power, with influence, every king takes to feed his own desires. That is, until we get to the king. That's what we see in this text, dealing with the best king of them all, David. And we come into this riding high on purpose. We, we come into this with things going well, with the promises of God full David flushed with victory. He just crushed Hadad-Ezer. Everything is going just wonderfully. And he is the best king of all in covenant with God. And then we get this bing, 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 in two, two to five. All, verse, all verbs, all action. And the most important verb is not arose and walking and saw or sent and inquired. The most important one is sent and took. He took her and lay with her. Why? This is not rocket science. Because he wanted her. He desired her. Verse 2, she's taken a bath, and it says she was very beautiful. We don't have to think too hard about that. We shouldn't think too hard about that. I'm the king. I have power. I see, I want, I will take. That's what's going on. In that moment as he sees her, he hungers and thirsts not after righteousness, but after the forbidden fruit that is right in front of his eyes and looks so desirable for tasting. There, there is no subtlety in this. There is no gray area in which someone might actually whisper to him, did God really say, she's married and he knows it. He's married way too much. And he knows it, but he does not care. There's no subtlety in this. I want, I have the power, I will take. And then when his eyes are open to the problem that he now has, rather than come clean, he moves to cover that, using more influence, using more power, pulling more levers, all to desire to avoid the, 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 uh, the painful consequence that will follow. He takes now the life of this loyal, godly man, Uriah. And the lives of other people along with him. 
And that's just the, the two big sins. There's a litany of other sins. As we work through the passage, we see, boy, you, you see him speaking with a forked tongue here. It's the language of another father. The audacity to talk about shalom when this guy's got a knife in his back. Inviting, luring someone to break a vow with the Lord. Recruiting other people like Joab, the accomplice to murder. Recruiting him into his sin. And then finally at the very end, literally, almost literally, calling evil good. Do not let this thing be evil in your sight. It's actually, it'd be good to have her. And it would be good if he would cover this up for me. And it would be good if he was dead. That'd be out of my jam. Don't call this evil. This is, whew, this is good. That's David. David. The best king the earth has ever known. David, who was a whole lot like, a whole lot more like Saul than we thought. And a whole lot more like Abimelech and the judges and the first rulers of the earth, Adam and Eve, and us. We need to approach this with some sober-minded humility here. Because it is really easy to see this and in our shock, bash David. I can't, I can't imagine. I, I, it, to be stunned by it. And it is stunning and it is shocking and it is, it is brazen, atrocious sin. And it is alarmingly familiar if you're awake. This is the sobering part of this. It, it is nothing that is not common to man and to woman. We see it in a king here, and he has a unique amount of power to, to pull some things off. But human history says that wherever human beings get power to move things to suit their own desires, to take, we take. That's what we do. That's what we are. You may never murder anybody, literally murder anybody, but Jesus talked about slandering people and being angry at people and said they have the same problem in the heart. And you may never commit adultery exactly, but he talked about lust and said it's the same problem in the heart. Has anybody ever deceived so as to cover over a sin? Anybody ever spoken words that seem calm and kind and gracious? Well, really, they're all self-serving. Yes. This is you and me and every other king. The point is, and every other king, even the best king. So we, we have something going on as we move through Samuel. Up to this point, David is on the rise and David is the hope. And then we realize, no, he's not. Oh, my word, he's not. David himself is in need of a king to come and use his power not to take but to give to give a, a change in desire so that one like David with all the power in the world would not hunger after ways to feed himself, but would hunger and thirst after righteousness and, and seek to give. That, has, that change has to happen, has to be given by someone else. David can't do it. David needs it. And so, 
so we see every other ruler, every other person, every other influencer, every other pastor, every other everybody is not the hope. And every other everybody is in need of a great hope, just like David is. So there is something here that is, that is tremendously sobering. And if, we, if you can move through the sobering and move through the depressing, heavy bit of this, you see, there's something, there's a marker that's been laid down here in this covenant with David that as I'm seeing... Oh, it's not met here in David. It must be met somewhere else. That's, that's a, a little light of hope there. You have to see that. We live often looking, looking here in this realm, right? We look at people and we look at churches and we look at ministries. We look at spouses. We look at potential future spouses and we say, when I find this, then it will be okay. And the answer is it will not be okay. You will still bump into people who take from you and you will still find yourself a taker until the king comes. And good news, he's come and he's actively engaged in the world to fix you. That, that is a good message hidden in here amidst the, de- the depressing uh, of David. It's not David, but there's someone else. God has sent the king who wielded his power not to take for himself but to give, give life, give hope, give fullness, give you properly ordered desires, give you new tastes. He's made you different. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, He can make you different. This is really good. You see, this, this, this is the problem that we all face, and God has acted to fix it. To forgive the sin in it, yes, but more than that, he's acted by sending a Savior, removes your guilt, and makes you different, makes you new every day, day by day by day by day. This is you, but you are not doomed to be only this forever. Growth is possible because God sent a king to give you new life rather than take from you. That is really good news. And I want to press you maybe just a little bit on this. Say, it's possible that you don't regard that as good news, either sitting there as a Christian or as not yet a Christian. It's possible that you don't regard that as good news because you really don't buy what I just said about David and you being one. Revisit that. You don't know the depth of your own heart. You need a Savior. You need to be different in ways that you cannot make yourself different. You need a Savior, someone to change who you are and how you work, and the glory is that God has given that. But you will only value and treasure what God has given if you actually believe you really need it. And you do. 
So there's something tremendously disappointing and depressing here that is, is necessary, is, is a fundamental building block of the hope. You have to be convinced that you're messed up before you see that God has gloriously provided a change agent and a source of forgiveness. That's what the king is about. And he's the only one. There isn't anyone anywhere else. There isn't any other religious leader. There isn't any other pastor. There isn't any other church. There isn't any other spouse. Every king until the king takes. And God sent one to give. That's one thing that rises. That's the first thing that rises out of this. It pops our David balloon and should let us see behind it the real hope, Christ. That's the first point. Every king until the king takes. And the second point, again, as I, as I deal with this, we need to deal with it soberly, but then see hope in it. So here's the second point. God sees all such evil. God sees all the taking and deceiving and covering and dodging and resisting and manipulating and coercing and afflicting. He sees it all and calls it evil. That's the point of verse 27, especially as it's in contrast with with the statement to Joab in verse 25. David wants all this to be good, and in case we haven't picked up from reading through and made our own evaluation, he spells it out at the very end. Know what this is, E-V-I-L. This is evil. But verse 27 adds in one more important element. Other than just the verdict of this all being evil, It adds in the element that God sees it all. For him to render a verdict on it, he has to have known it happened. He sees it. What we have here is a kind of scenario, perhaps you've, uh, hopefully you've never been caught doing something like this, but you're working on a computer doing something that you shouldn't. Maybe you're surfing websites that you shouldn't be or sending off emails that you shouldn't be sending off. Doing something, and then you pause and you notice somebody's standing right there. Saw me, saw the screen. How long have you been standing there? The whole time that you did that evil. That's a problem. It's especially a problem if that's the judge with power. It's a problem. He does more than just say this is evil. In verse 27, he also says, and I saw it. All of it. That's how life always is. All of life is lived before the face of God. There is nothing hidden from Him. There is nowhere to go to be away from Him. He sees it all, even when He seems silent and inactive. Even if His providential work is hidden from our eyes and He seems to be nowhere around at all. 
If he seems silent, he is there seeing and judging, evaluating. And this should be a warning and also an encouragement to us. Consider the warning first. As you think about this, when you picture the the one standing there, if you just knew he was there, you probably would have changed what you called up. You read this and you say, oh, that David would see this. So much tragedy would have been averted. Not just in this chapter, the whole rest of the book. This is a turning point in the book. There are bright spots in the rest of the book, but the rest of the book of 2 Samuel is tragic. So much would have been averted if David had known, I'm walking on the rooftop and with me is him. I'm watching and he's watching me watch. To see that. That's always going on. If you are tempted and you find yourself drawn along to use your power to feed your desires, may God remind you of the truth that He sees, that He's right there with you, that all of it's going on right in front of Him. Even the things you're not voicing that are going on inside your heart, they're all going on in front of Him with consequence. This is a warning to us. And I need to state very carefully what manner of warning this is because there are two different flavors this warning takes. First, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, you need to know this one who sees everything in your heart and everything that you think and everything that you do, all of it evaluated against His law is your judge. And it will all come back and be accounted for. He is the one to whom you must give account. That May God open your eyes and you see how deadly serious that is. The absolute nature of the law of God says you must love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your might. That's love that gets played out in a hundred ways, but it's about the heart. And He sees and will judge and you will fall. You need a Savior. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you. You need a Savior. You need a King who will use His power to give you life. And that one has been sent. Take Him. But believer, Christian, I need to say the same thing subtly turned because there's a problem, there's a mistake that we make in our minds here. You hear the language that I'm using here, the the tone of this. It is very easy and very common for us to hear the warning of God sees me and to see God like this. Coming up behind me while I'm working on my keyboard. Coming up There's something that you need, you need to get and, and put in, lock in there so that it never goes away. There is no condemnation for you 
who are in Christ. He sees you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I'm going to have to put some of these things here together because those sound like they gut each other and leave, leave each statement meaningless. No, He sees you and there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ. But there is real and living consequence Real and living discipline in this life and real and actual consequence for eternity for sin. And there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ. None. The Gospel has done something marvelous. And as a Christian, you need to, you need to remember the Gospel that says there's no condemnation that God has removed off of me all wrath, and then also realize that that does not mean that He is not holy and there is no consequence to sin, that there is no discipline that follows. Both are true. If you imagine Peter in in the courtyard of the high priest as he denies Jesus the third time, And he catches Jesus' eye. Does he fear condemnation? He's heartbroken. He's heartbroken by it. Because he knows something of who that Jesus is and what it has meant for me to turn away from him and to deny him, this one who loves me so and is my everything, and I just abandon him. Oh, not fearing that Christ is going to reach down and whack him, but heartbroken over it. Christian, in your sin, see him seeing you, and may you be heartbroken over it. May you see in the gospel that removes off of you all wrath a glorious and really, 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 really good God who has poured out on you love and may it break your heart to find yourself abandoning Him, chasing after false and empty desires. Break your heart. May He break your heart. May He break your heart. He sees your sin. Do you see your sin? Do you see Him there standing with you in the midst of your sin? May it break your heart. There's a warning there. But in particular, I think the piece that most grabs me in this chapter, at least most grabs me, is the encouragement piece of it. which might seem kind of odd as you approach it. We read through the chapter. We see David sending and David making the moves and David exercising all kinds of power and David taking and taking and taking. He plays all the cards, foiled at first. Oops, she's pregnant. And foiled again. Oops, he didn't go home. But he keeps working it. And eventually he wins. Gets his way. 
Everything's good. And Uriah loses. And if you look at the text and you see that, you realize that's often how it looks in life. The one who is in power over me holds all the cards, plays them, and wins, and I lose. And it's very easy to find ourselves in Uriah's place saying, along with the psalmist, in vain have I kept myself pure. In vain have I been loyal to the Lord. In vain have I sought after and hungered for righteousness. Remained loyal to this king and to this general. I still got my wife and my life taken from me. What was the point? This is a common thought as we suffer at the hands of others, and big things are little things. We're powerless. They work us and get what they want. Something bad happens, and I suffer. And it is very easy to ask, why do the wicked, powerful people prosper and the righteous, weak people suffer? And to grate under that. And in the midst of that, there is this word of foreshadowing dropped right in there for you to take and ponder. God sees all this evil. It's foreshadowing. He sees it, and he renders a verdict on it, and he's going to deal with it someplace. You need to know that and realize it. Even if it is not accounted for today, it will be accounted for tomorrow. And if it's not accounted for today, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that God does not intervene and and stop what's going on. This is a hard one for us to reckon with, but God was with David on the rooftop watching him watch, and he did not stop him. God was right there with David when he wrote out the note, Bathsheba, her address, go get her. He didn't stop it. He didn't stop it anywhere along the line. He watched the whole thing. That happens always in life. God's watching everything and every ill, every trouble, every calamity, even ones of this magnitude, He sees, He calls them evil, and most of the time does not stop them. How can that be encouraging? This is the encouraging part. Think. Who is God? What is God doing? You've got to think back to what we've seen again and again and again and again. This is the God who providentially is controlling everything, just think last week, so as to do good to His people, which is defined as so as to reveal to them 
the reality of the depth and the breadth of God in His very being to reveal to people God is what is good. That's what He's doing. Do you not look at this chapter and see, oh, thank you, Uriah. Thank you, Uriah, because I see in this the David bubble popped and behind that the Christ bubble there and growing. I am one who treasures Christ more because of what you went through, Uriah. And all of the church down through all of the ages has read this story and there is remarkable stuff in the next chapter about the grace and the goodness of God. Seeing what it teaches us about God, about the gospel, about forgiveness. Do you realize, perhaps you don't realize this, Bathsheba is the mother of Solomon. The line of Messiah comes through Bathsheba. The line of Messiah comes through Bathsheba. For one, thank you, Uriah. Because apart from this happening, where's the line of Messiah? Apart from this happening, where's the Messiah? Apart from this happening, I'm not saved. Uriah himself, suffering, pierced, dying, worshiping in glory for ages as he sees the effect of what happened to him played out in the church, a people, one to God, because of this. He never saw it in the day. But he sees it now and worships and worships and worships. Let us not feel sorry for Uriah. He is thankful to have been used. David thought he was using him for one thing. God was using him for something else. This is hard. But you've got to see the end. You've you got to see what's going on. That God sees means he's there, over it, in control of it, and if he does not intervene, it's because he's got a reason, and you know what the reason is, to do good to his people, to exalt the name of Christ. If he didn't see and he wasn't there, we'd be left alone in the world. Tragic. He sees and he's present. And how we should respond to that now in the midst of what's going on is to thank God for the work that He did at the cross to free us from saving ourselves. I'm thinking in particular here. Let me just tell you to jot this down and look at it. 1 Peter 2, the end of 1 Peter 2, when you suffer evil while you are doing good, What are you supposed to do? Well, like Jesus, entrust yourself to Him who judges justly. And you can do that because the cross frees you from needing to defend yourself. The cross has won for you a Savior who has secured you forever. The cross has won for you a Savior, a King, who fixes you, forgives you, and promises you All of the evil that's going on in your life, I see it and I judge it as evil and I will take care of it 
taking care of you in the meantime. That's who God is. That's who God is. Next week, we see him roll out some of that as he interacts with David. But he gives us a little foreshadowing of it there at the end. And that's how he's always at work in your life, even when you never read your own chapter 12. Let me pray. Lord, we are a people who simultaneously take and suffer from those who take. So I pray two things for your people here, Lord. That by what you've done in the gospel, you would change us. We would no longer be takers, but those who give you do that, please? And then secondly, as we suffer under those in power, would you remind us in the moment of the hardship, would you remind us that you are present, that you are seeing? Particularly remind your people here that you see and have it all under your hand, all under control, carrying out your purpose. We need hope like this, so give it to us, please. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hard thing that this story is about. It has done good to us. We bless your name for it. Build your church. Sanctify your people. Give us rest in you. Thank you for being such a good king. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.